What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Jim Rickards is an economist, banker, lawyer, and capital market advisor for the Secretary of Defense and Intelligence community. You may know him from his books Currency Wars, The Death of Money, The New Case for Gold, The Road to Ruin, or his newsletter, Strategic Intelligence. Jim was born into a middle-class family in Pennsylvania, but life changed dramatically when his father, who owned a gas station, went bankrupt when he was just 12 years old. Jim talks about how he used education to escape from poverty and have a successful career on this episode of What Got You There. Jim, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Sean. Great to be with you. So, Jim, how do you start your day? Well, usually with a couple of cups of coffee. Uh, that's a, a good starter. Uh, not too many. I'm, I'm not one of these people who drinks 14 cups a day, but I start with two or three. Uh, you know, just try to clear the head a little bit and get going. I, I always have a, a to-do list. It's not quite the same as a schedule. Sometimes, you know, you have scheduled events or travel or whatever. But in addition, I keep a list of things to do. And I don't always get to them all, but it's kind of aspirational. Try to get as much done as I can. And Whatever doesn't get done, just get rolled over to the next day. There you go. A little coffee, get the blood going. Nothing wrong with that. So, Jim, I want to jump into your backstory a little bit. So I want to rewind to when you were about 12. Let's talk about your early days. What was going on around when you were 12 with your dad, his gas station business? What happened there? And then how did that impact you moving forward? Well, interesting thing about 12, that was a, a major turning point. Most people, uh, you know, they think about, you know, getting out of college or getting married or things that their first job, things that happened later in life. But 12 years old was a, you know, a significant turning point for me. Up until that time, I'd had uh, probably the most normal childhood in America. You know, whatever the, the middle class is, uh, imagine the middle of the middle class. So not. Uh, upper middle class, not lower middle class, not living in a big mansion, not living in a, uh, you know, a small bungalow, but, uh, something in between, you know, the split level house in New Jersey, the new car every couple of years, uh, convertible, uh, good public schools and just kind of a happy little kid. Uh, not, not really different, uh, from my peers. Uh, but then at that time, my, um, my father who always had uh, one job, he worked on the railroad his entire career, uh, from uh, the time he got out of the uh, Marines at the end of uh, World War II um, until his retirement. Uh, but he did a number of other things, and one thing he did, he started a, a gas station with um, with uh, his brother, my Uncle George, and uh, they had some success, and then they turned it into uh, what they called the Muffler Mar, and they did some you know, mufflers and other repairs, and had, and it was all kind of going very well. And he, you know, he was working two jobs, you know, 16 hours a day or whatever, but he loved what he was doing. Uh, and then for reasons that I didn't understand, because why a 12-year-old is not necessarily a financial expert, uh, there was a price war broke out and uh, gas was you know, 10 cents a gallon or whatever at the time. Um, anyway, long story short, his, his business went bankrupt. But in those days, the bankruptcy laws were much more harsh than they are today. And, you know, the, the bank uh, you know, foreclosed the mortgage and repossessed the house. And next thing you know, we were on the road um, Moving into uh, what was a quite a small bungalow that my grandmother owned, she rented to us for thirty five dollars a month. Uh, we had uh, we had eight people in a two bedroom bungalow. I'll, I'll spare the listener the logistics of that, but you know, the baby slept with my parents, and two brothers slept in the bunk room, and I slept on on bunk beds, and I slept on a porch, and uh, two other kids slept on fold out beds, whatever. But 
the point being, uh, we were still a family. We were still together. We still had a lot of love. We still looked out for each other. But, you know, objectively, financially, and materially, we'd had the rug pulled out from under us. And I guess as the oldest, I was the oldest of six, and as a 12-year-old, maybe you're a little more sensitive to that. I think small children are actually more flexible. They just kind of roll with it. Well, they know their circumstances have changed, but um, they're not really uh, thinking too much about that say the dynamics of that, but I think the oldest I was affected, and it gave me a sense that I wanted to have a little more control over my own life. I I didn't blame anybody. I wasn't angry, but I I said, gee, this is um, uh, this is something I didn't see coming. This was something that was unexpected, and really, then for the rest of my life, I always wanted to um, be a little bit more in charge. To kind of say, well, okay, how how do I get out of here? How do I move on from here? How do I kind of deal with this? Not necessarily depending on others, even though you're always dependent on your parents to some extent. Uh, uh, and, and so that was a, a big shakeup. Uh, it shook up my complacency, um, made me think hard about the way forward. And then from then on, with no material resources, because like I say, we didn't, we weren't wealthy. We, 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 at that point, we were poor. I mean, we were living on uh, food stamps and uh, different kinds of assistance. Uh, not, not, not the most hardship case by any means, but you know it was it was a little rough for a number of years. But uh, it got me to focus on education. I said, "Well, that's my way. I don't have a lot of money, don't have a lot of connections, or uh, you know, famous name or anything like that." But but I think if I get the the academic credentials, get the education, that that was a way forward, and that really guided me for for many years after that. Oh man, fascinating backstory. And then I loved how you were able to transition focus on your education. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about some of your career struggles. I know your involvement with long-term capital management. You want to talk about that for the listeners? Sure. Well, after, uh, you know, after high school, I went to uh, college, went to Johns Hopkins University, and then I I got a graduate degree in international economics. Uh, Then uh, I went to law school at University of Pennsylvania, got a law degree, uh, but I said, you know, uh, one law degree is not enough. <laughs> I actually got a, a second. I got a second law degree uh, majoring in taxation from NYU, the number one tax program. It's called a Master of Laws. Became highly, highly specialized in um, international corporate taxation. Was corporate uh, international uh, tax counsel to uh, Citibank for about ten years. Uh, so career is going along smoothly. Probably, if you'd asked me at the age of uh, you know, 33, what I would be doing when I was 63, I would have said, well, I'm going to be a tax lawyer. That's what I do. And could have had a very long career doing that. But uh, kind of mid-career, uh, right around the age of 33, 34, changed it up, uh, left the bank, which was kind of the mothership, and joined a, a much smaller but still significant investment banking firm specializing in U.S. government securities uh, as their general counsel and chief credit officer. And that was really my switch from um, uh commercial banking, as we understood it at the time, to investment banking, trading, uh, securities trading, derivatives, and all the things that I spent many decades after that uh, doing. Um, so after getting kind of immersed in the government securities market, because our firm was was a bond dealer, now I was at a, a company called Greenwich Capital Markets, which later became part of uh, RBS, Royal Bank of Scotland, through a series of acquisitions. But in that business, the um, the New York Yankees, if you will, was a, a firm called Solomon Brothers. Now, not, none of these firms are still around. They've all been acquired or merged, or in case of Lehman Brothers failed. So these are these are names from a, from a different day. But uh, but Solomon Brothers were the the New York Yankees of government bond trading, if you want to think of it that way. So you always kind of looked up to them, um, and their uh, 
their head, their, their most profitable franchise was this group led by John Merriweather, uh, the, the the bond arbitrage group, and he had a number of protégés that he had recruited and trained. Uh, well, they had a, a big scandal in 1991. John uh, Merriweather was not directly involved, but he he was the supervisor of the guys who were that were who was a bad actor who actually ended up in jail. Um, cheated, you know, rigged the government bond market, as I say, and he ended up in jail as a result of that. But, but John had to leave Solomon Brothers not because he did anything directly wrong, but just because he was supervising the guy who did, and so he kind of caught some of the blame for that, along with the chairman, the CEO, and the general counsel. I mean, it was a real bloodbath there. Warren Buffett had to step in and bail out the whole firm. It was a crisis in the bond market. That was 1991. Well, flash forward a couple of years, John leaves, and then he sort of put the band back together, if you want to think of it that way, started this hedge fund called Long-Term Capital Management, and one by one recruited these protégés that he had hired and trained the Solomon Brothers. So I'm watching this whole thing transpire, thinking to myself, man, if you could ever work for those guys, that would be like, like I said, that would be like, I, we were we were kind of in the big leagues as it was, but if you got traded from the, you know, the New York Mets to the New York Yankees, you would consider that uh, kind of an uptick. And, and this was looking like... Uh, the place you want it to be. So I threw a friend of a friend threw my hat in the ring and did a very grueling interview process with um, all these uh, PhDs. And we had 16 finance PhDs, uh, including two Nobel Prize winners. Uh, it was to the point that we were we were actually getting complaints from the deans of certain business schools saying, "Hey, you are you're depriving the world of a generation of finance scholars because you're you're hiring all the big brains uh, coming up at, <laughs> coming up in the PhD program and the programs." And there was some truth to that. We were systematically uh, recruiting uh, those people who were considered the most outstanding uh, PhD candidates at the top schools, whether it's Harvard or. Chicago or Stanford, we we had a pipeline to those faculties and kind of knew where the talent was. Uh, but anyway, I came on board not as a risk manager or as a trader, but as the general counsel. So I was the lawyer from 1994 to 1998. Uh, so that five year stretch, including um, uh, you know the beginning and end, we were uh, we were from the outside viewed as a money machine, a black box, uh, one of the most incredible. Franchises ever created. We went from one billion dollars of capital on day one to seven billion dollars of capital by the end of 1997. We had more than tripled investors' money. We were banging out 25, 30, in one case 40 percent you know, returns per year net of fees. That was after we took all the fees. We you still made 40 percent on your money. Um, it was just it was just an unbelievable ride. And again, as a lawyer, I. Um, uh, you know, I negotiated all the contracts. I uh, did all the swap agreements. I dealt with the regulators, you know, et cetera. I was very, very immersed in the mechanics of the firm, but not from a risk management point of view. But one of the things I did, I had made a lot of money in, in my days at Greenwich Capital, and I was making a lot of money at long-term capital. I wasn't, I wasn't making the kind of money that the head traders were making, but certainly for a Wall Street lawyer, I was um, very well compensated. And my attitude was, well, Look, I'm I'm a lawyer. I know what I'm doing here. I know what my responsibilities are. I think I'm doing a good job, but uh, I'm not really the investor or the risk manager. These guys are the geniuses. They have the PhDs and the Nobel prizes to prove it. So I sort of took my bonus money and money I'd made elsewhere and invested it in the firm uh, in long-term capital management. We had a fund set up so employees could invest. Uh, and you got the same returns as outside investors, but they didn't charge you any fees, so you made even more money. So this was all going along brilliantly. Uh, 
and uh, my my investment account was uh, getting you know quite large, uh, and then the whole thing blew up, um, literally blew up in six weeks from the middle of August to the end of uh, September 1998. We lost ninety two percent of the net asset value. Now, fortunately, we had paid a three billion dollar dividend the year before at the end of 1997. So a lot of investors over the life of the fund actually made money, notwithstanding that horrible loss in 1998. If you invested in day one and we tripled your money and we gave you $2 back at the end of 97, kept the first dollar, lost 92 cents, you still got $2.08 on your original buck. So not not a horrible experience. But for for the, the people who ran the fund, we actually owned most of the fund uh, ourselves when it uh, collapsed. Um, and you know, there was some justice in that we were running the fund and we lost most of the money, um, myself included. But, uh, so that was the second time I already talked about my, my story as a 12 year old, but here, here I am, uh, what, I guess I was 47 years old at this point, uh, getting the rug pulled out from under me a second time, losing, uh, you know, the lion's share of my net worth in this meltdown. Uh, but that was another thing, another turning point, if you will, where you try to, take uh, something objectively negative, obviously large financial losses are negative, and turn it into something positive. And what I said then is, uh, okay, I'm a lawyer. I got another job. I could work on Wall Street. Uh, and by the way, I, I negotiated the bailout. Um, uh, again, it got to the point where no one really cared about a hedge fund or hedge fund owners. But we had $1.3 trillion of derivatives contracts with the rest of Wall Street. So we were trading with all these firms, you know, whether it was Citibank or Bank of America or Merrill Lynch or Credit Suisse or Deutsche Bank or, you know, take your pick. The, you know, the 50 largest banks in the world, by and large, were our counterparties. And so, uh, you know, I used to say, well, if we had gone bankrupt and we were heading in that direction, I could have just slept in the next day. There would have been <laughs> nothing to do uh, other than just a big legal cleanup. But, uh, but Wall Street would have collapsed. In other words, the entire global financial system was only hours away from complete collapse on September 28th, uh, 1998. Uh, if we had failed, uh, Lehman Brothers would have failed almost immediately. It's interesting how Lehman Brothers was always the weak link. When you, know, you flash forward to 2008, I wasn't the least bit surprised to see Lehman fail because they had almost failed in 1998. They were, like I said, they were always the weakest link in the chain. But, you know, then they would have closed the Tokyo Stock Exchange, and uh, it wasn't just bonds. We were a bond trading firm, for sure, but but trillions in derivatives. Um, but we had $15 uh, billion in stock positions, uh, mostly in derivative form, so-called equity swaps with Bear Stearns, which was our clearing broker. Suffice to say, we were just networked in such a way that you couldn't remove long-term capital management from the the, uh, the the puzzle, if you will, without the whole thing collapsing. It's like a house of cards. You know, you remove one card. We were one of the most important cards. So, uh, so Wall Street got together and put $4 billion approximately into us to prop up our balance sheet, not to save us, which they didn't, but to save themselves so that all these trades didn't fail and they could take a year to work them out, which they did. So I hung around for a year. I used to said, you know, it's like if you blow up the chemistry lab, you're supposed to clean up after class before you go to your next class. So I stayed around for about a year and um, helped with the unwind and stabilized everything. And again, we did dodge this particular bullet. And then I moved on, got another job. And, you know, I did other things, worked for another big hedge fund, Cash and Associates, a much more successful firm in the long run. Uh, Bruce Kovner was the head trader there. But I came away with it. I came away from that with... Um, 
an, an intellectual gap, if you will, saying, look, um, these guys weren't dumb. They were good guys. They knew them all. They're friends. They, they really were geniuses. They really did have the PhDs. They really did win the Nobel Prizes. They weren't dopes. They had the models. I said, there must be something very badly flawed about modern financial theory if the smartest, best practitioners can't get it right. If they uh, didn't see this coming, if they didn't understand the risks, if they were victims of it, as, as we all were, uh, if they almost destroyed the world, there must be something very wrong with the world of capital markets and financial theory as we know it. Otherwise, this wouldn't have happened. So I began to drill down on that and spent years really um, studying uh, uh, physics, uh, complexity theory, network theory, graph theory, uh, applied mathematics, um, other disciplines such as behavioral psychology, read a lot of financial history. I'd read that throughout my career, but uh, but but read more at this point, and little by little came to understand what the flaws were in uh, in modern financial theory. And those were they, once you understood, once you looked at it through a different lens, um, you, the flaws just jump out at you. You go, oh, that, that can't be right. That can't be right. So you, you can see it much more clearly. And this is where this is the difference between, uh, let's say, a model. And a paradigm. Um, we all use models. We all use mathematical or um, uh, you know, narrative type uh, uh, structures to understand reality. Things that are supposed to correspond with reality. And you know, the math is always right by definition. It doesn't mean you have a good model, but you know, people don't really screw up the math. The inputs and the outputs, you know, kind of fall out of the model. We're all, we're all looking at the same facts. I always tell people, you know, I don't, I don't have different facts than anyone else. I just analyze them differently. My models are different, but we're all looking at the same data set. But before you get to a model, you have to have what's called a paradigm. And a paradigm is sort of a meta um, view of, of the whole world, your way of understanding the world. You know, does, does the sun revolve around the earth or does the earth revolve around the sun? Well, we all know that the earth revolves around the sun, but for 1,500 years, people thought that the sun revolved around the earth because, you know, it comes up over there in the morning, goes down over there in the evening, and comes back around the next day, so it must be circling the earth. Well, that's an example of a, of a paradigm, and once you change the paradigm and say, you know, you know, you're Copernicus or you're Johann Kepler or you're Tycho Brahe, and you say, you know, I, I think the earth revolves around the sun. Well, then all of a sudden, everything looks different. The whole universe looks different. The planetary motions look different, et cetera. Well, I had that same kind of uh, epiphany as applied to risk and dynamics in capital markets. I began to see that, you know, w what are the pillars of modern financial theory? What were the things that long-term capital management was relying on? Uh, one is um, uh, called efficient markets, which is that markets can smoothly and continuously integrate new information so you can't beat the market. In other words, you're, you're, you're always going to be, you know, the best you can do is kind of passively index. One is that um, prices move uh, smoothly from one level to another, yet prices adjust to incorporate new information, but that's a smooth, continuous process, and you can get in and out of a liquid market anywhere along the way. Three is that it's the, the system is basically an equilibrium system. It, in normal times, it operates very smoothly, and if it gets out of equilibrium, then either market forces through arbitrage or policymakers will apply policy to restore the equilibrium. Four is that risk is normally distributed. When I say normal distribution, that just refers the bell, to the bell curve so that extreme events 
but you know, never happen or statistically would happen every once every three billion years, which means they never happen, uh, or um, the you know, less extreme events happen all the time. It turns out that every one of those things, every one of those pillars that I just described is wrong. It's, a, it's not an opinion. It's objectively, empirically, scientifically wrong. Um, prices do not move continuously. They gap. They'll be at one level and then up you know, 5% in the next bid because some shock took place in the market. Risk is not normally distributed. The, the degree distribution uh, is something called a power curve, which uh, in which extreme events do happen more frequently, which is exactly what we observe. But you don't need to bend, you know, stick a tail on the bell curve to make it work. The power curve actually does have um, does make allowance for that, and that's what it would predict. Which, by the way, power curve is a is a graphical representation of a, of a complex system. That's the the degree distribution of events in a complex system. Uh, markets are not efficient. There are tons of inefficiencies all over the place. You can beat the markets if you understand these kind of efficiencies. In other words, all of the tenets of modern finance were just incorrect. So that was an epiphany right there, saying, oh, well, it's not that they were dumb. It's not that they didn't work hard. They just didn't understand how the world works. Um, then take it further. And by the way, what I just described is kind of where Nassim Taleb got in his book, The Black Spawn. He just took a baseball bat and bludgeoned the bell curve to death, which yep. <laughs> needed to be done. That was a good move. But um, but then Taleb kind of threw up his hands, walked away from the table and said, you know, you can't model this. It's just too crazy. Stuff happens. He used a more vulgar term, but, you know, stuff happens. And uh, and that's that's the black swan. I wasn't satisfied with that either. I said, well, okay, all this math, all this science doesn't work. It's junk science. But what does work? And then that's where... I got into these other branches I described. And I ended up working with physicists at uh, places like Los Alamos National Laboratory, uh, the Applied Physics Laboratory near Washington, D.C., uh, working on team science, collaborating with others and all this to build models that, that do work. Uh, and so that's been, um, I would say, that that's an intellectual journey. So uh, looking back at my life, I had these two shocks. One was, you know, 12 years old, my father's business goes bankrupt. I get the rug pulled out from under me. The next time is, you know, 47 years old. I almost personally go bankrupt. I didn't, but, you know, came a little, came uncomfortably close, put it that way. Got the rug pulled out from under me. But both times, something positive came out of it. In the case of the 12 year old, it was, you know, let's focus on education and, uh, you know, build your career that way. And then in the case of the 47 year old, it was, um, you know, there's, there's a problem here. Let's figure out what it is. And then since then, I've been able to, um, you know, build a new career as a as a writer, author, speaker, and analyst. Uh, and I've actually started a new company to work on um, a lot of the science I described. But I don't think I would have done any of that but for the, the shock of uh, what happened at Long-Term Capital. Today, what got you there is being fueled by Soniva Super Coffee. Soniva provides an organic bottled coffee blended with lactose-free protein and MCTs from coconut oil for all-day energy. Grab a bottle at your local Whole Foods market or use discount code WGYT at drinksupercoffee.com for 20% off your order. Are you looking to finish the latest thriller, such as The Girl on the Train, while you're at the gym or in the car? Well, now you can. For listeners of What Got You There podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check this out. Head over to www.audibletrial.com forward slash what got you there to choose from over 180,000 titles to select the book you want to hear next. 
Distilled utilizes the same fabrics, factories, and wash houses as the best-known brands and designers while skipping the markups and middlemen. The result? Top-quality denim without the retail runaround. Just go to dstld.com and see where minimalist design meets maximum comfort. They have a 100% fit guarantee, offering free shipping and returns until you find the perfect pair. Inspired by the creative class, Distilled is the perfect brand for those who have other things to think about besides getting dressed. You'll look good no matter what with Distilled. Distilled has been featured in Forbes, Time, and TechCrunch, as well as on denim-clad celebrities in GQ and Men's Health. You can find the brand's amazing selection of outwear, leather jackets, t-shirts, and more using the same principles of high-grade materials at low-end cost. Distilled is your answer to elevated style without elevated prices. Just go to dstld.com right now and use the promo code JOURNEY10 in all caps at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. Wow, I mean, so much to unpack right there, but I'm curious, as you transition to this next part of your life, how does someone like myself, how do we assess what's going on right now? We've got everything with North Korea, the economy. What do you see taking place in the next few months and also the next few years? Well, um, a couple of things. Uh, one is, uh, unfortunately, the dynamic of war between the United States and North Korea is compelling, meaning that war is very likely to happen um, probably in the spring of 2018, if I had to estimate right now, you know, March, April, May, uh, somewhere in there. Uh, the French have an expression, uh, les logiques de guerre, which means the logic of war. And it's different than the logic of diplomacy or the logic that a lot of people apply to the problem. Um, and most wars happen not because anybody wants a war, but because two sides, two adversaries misapprehend each other's intentions and capabilities, and you end up in a war even though nobody wants it. Uh, and that's the situation today. So let's just take the two sides. Kim Jong-un. So right now he's in what's called breakout mode. Breakout is a particular term of art in weapons development, particularly nuclear weapons development. Normally, all these things are illegal, either by treaty or they're banned uh, by United Nations resolutions, or you're sanctioned if you engage in them, and exporters are not allowed to ship you certain equipment or financial sanctions. There's a whole international array of tools designed to prevent or prohibit states from pursuing these programs. But some of them do it anyway, and they tend to do it, you know, surreptitiously, they do it in small steps, they work in underground labs, they have networks to buy you know, the equipment they need illegally, etc. And then every now and then they get caught, and then they get sanctioned, they get their wrist slapped, and they cool it, and they slow it down, and they start it up again. So that kind of, let's call it gradual weapons development. That's what North Korea had been doing uh, beginning in the mid-90s, probably had a program, well, it did have a program before then, but in in made bigger strides beginning in the mid-90s. And same thing with Iran. Iran's been doing it since the, since the um, 1980s. But breakout is when you say, I don't care. I'm, not, I'm just going to go for it. You know, I'm in like a football team. You're in the red zone. You're, you're going for the end zone. You're trying to score a touchdown. You're not trying to hide it anymore. Uh, once you go from, let's call it stealth or baby step mode, to breakout mode, you have to move as quickly as possible because the risk is that someone's going to stop you. There's going to be some kind of preventive war. Uh, and so you you go from doing everything surreptitiously to doing everything blatantly as quickly as possible so you can get into the end zone, score the touchdown. That's what Kim Jong-un is doing now. That that explains the tempo of his operations. He's already fired twice as many missiles 
in about four years as his father did in, you know, 20 plus years. So, um, and doing new weapons tests, the ICBM, the, what's called the Hwasong 14 missile and the, um, and the H bomb, which, uh, his father didn't have. His father detonated something that's, that's like an atomic bomb. There's different technology involved there. Um, now, uh, so, so why doesn't, why doesn't Kim Jong-un you know, fear some kind of preventive war from the United States? Well, he's looking at this saying, I'm better off with the weapons than without them. And if I can get them quickly, it'll be a fait accompli. Nobody will mess with me. And his data points, and this, he's not crazy. I mean, he has a basis for this. His data points are, you look at uh, Gaddafi in Libya. Uh, Muammar Gaddafi had a nuclear weapons program, but he gave it up. He actually handed it over to Mike Morell, who was the, the deputy director of the CIA at the time, or Madam Director of Clandestine Operations, but 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 Mike Merrill went there and basically took uh, took um, the keys away from Gaddafi. But later on, we invaded Libya and Gaddafi got killed. Uh, Saddam Hussein had a nuclear weapons program. He didn't have one in 2003 when we invaded, but he did have one in the late 1980s, early 1990s. He also gave it up, and then we invaded it, and he got killed. And then you look at the Iranians, they have a nuclear weapons program. They did not give it up, and they're still standing. So Kim Jong-un says, well, this is easy. If you give up your program, they invade you and kill you. But if you don't give up your program, they don't mess with you. Simple math. So <laughs> that's simple math. But he's got three data points, and this is one of the <laughs> wonders of American foreign policy over the last 30 years. So he's sitting there saying, hey, I'm better off with the program because if I have it, the U.S. won't mess with me. That's not crazy. That's actually fairly logical. From the U.S. perspective, however, we're saying the opposite. By the way, he also believes we're bluffing based partly on um, what Obama did with Assad in Syria when he laid down his red line. He said if Assad uses chemical, biological weapons, you know, there'll be a price to pay. That's a red line. Saddam used those weapons almost immediately, killed a lot of people, and Obama didn't do anything. So, so Kim Jong-un looks at that and says, well, Americans have lost their appetite for war. They're tired of war. They're bluffing. So the combination of feeling safer with the weapons than without and believing the U.S. is bluffing has led him to conclude that he can do this and nothing's going to happen. And he may, may turn out to be right. But I don't think so. From the U.S. perspective, we view this as an existential threat. No admiral or general or commander-in-chief wants to be the one who loses an American city, you know, Los Angeles or Seattle or Denver, or whatever the case may be. Um, and even if he, people talk about a classic theory of deterrence, oh, Kim Jong-un would never fire a missile at Seattle because we'd go wipe them out. Really? I mean, that's not clear. Uh, and, and they've got underground bunkers. He doesn't care about his own people. You know, they had a, an incredible famine in the 1990s. People were eating bark off of trees. He doesn't care if those people get killed. It's, as long as he and the leadership can be secure in the underground bunkers. There was one quote, some reporter went there recently and uh, interviewed North Korea and said, well, we'll just go underground, you know, play, uh, play accordions and banjos and dance, and when we come out, we'll establish communism. I mean, we're, we're, we don't really care. And so, um, so it's not clear that the classic deterrence theory works at all. It's not clear that maybe we're not bluffing, um, to him at least. And so, but the other thing is, even if he has these weapons and doesn't fire them at Seattle, he could invade South Korea. Remember, the Korean War is not over. The, the Korean War that went from 1950 to 1953 is not over. There was an armistice in 1953, which just means you stop shooting, but there was never a peace treaty. So technically, a state of war still exists. Um, and as far as the North Koreans are concerned, that invasion of the South is unfinished business. It was Kim Jong-un's grandfather, 
who invaded the South and was pushed back. And then there was a DMZ and an armistice, and they stopped fighting. But they still want to unify the South, the, the Korean Peninsula, including South Korea, obviously on their terms. So, so let's say they invade Korea, they invade South Korea, but they have a nuclear weapon. What's the United States going to do? I mean, are we going to trade Seoul for Seattle? Are we actually going to help the South Koreans fight, knowing that he could fire an ICBM at Seattle or at Los Angeles? Again, I don't think so. And so these, a lot of these threats lose their meaning. He could peel off Japan. Uh, Japan could go nuclear, uh, you know, et cetera. So the entire U.S. presence in the Western Pacific could, in effect, disappear. Our allies could be lost. The global dynamics would change. That That's all as a result of Kim Jong-un just having the missiles, even if he doesn't fire them. So for all these reasons, um, the U.S. will not allow him to have the missiles or, the, or these nuclear weapons. And so here's a dynamic that says, I have to have them. We have a dynamic that says you can't have them. That's going to lead to war. I mean, that's how wars happen when the two sides are, are on this irreconcilable path. Um, people say, well, he's posturing for negotiations. No, he's not. If he wanted negotiations, he could pick up a phone today and call President Trump. He could call um, Rex Tillerson and get concessions and so forth. And so uh, he's, he's not doing that. And, um, and so, therefore, this war is definitely coming. The markets have not priced it in. There's going to be a market shock as a result of that. And, um, again, this is, all, this is all very clear using the kind of analysis that I've uh, described to you. But, um, you know, markets are in denial. They've almost normalized these missile launches. You know, they used to be, well, not used to be, I mean, recently, a few months ago, Kim Jong-un would shoot up a missile and, uh, um, you know, the markets would go down 1% and then they would bounce back. And now it's like, oh, gee, another day, another missile. Who cares? What's the point of trading, trading off if it's just going to bounce back again? And so, uh, so it's lost its impact. But that's, that's, in my view, uh, the wrong way to think about it. Every missile doesn't normalize missile launches. It takes you one step closer to war. You should be preparing uh, your portfolio, preparing for that. But the markets are kind of oblivious. They're in denial, as the case may be. And um, uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. But- then how are you preparing your portfolio right now? Well, I have uh, you know larger allocation to cash. I have uh, a ten percent allocation to gold, and a lot of people say you know they they like to put words in your mouth, and people say, uh, oh, you know, Jim Rickard says sell everything and buy gold. I've never said that. I've never you know predicted the end of the world. I don't believe that, but I do believe that perhaps some momentous you know market uh, shaking events are coming, and I recommend a ten percent allocation to gold. I think it's a good. Um, that'll, that'll be robust. Those kind of shocks, a good, uh, kind of insurance policy. But if you have more cash and, um, then something, uh, uh, you know, there is a significant drawdown in the markets and you're the one who can go shopping for bargains. I mean, uh, look at Warren Buffett today. He has $100 billion in cash. Uh, why does Warren Buffett have $100 billion in cash? Well, he sees coming, he, he sees something coming along the lines I'm describing. And Buffett is famous for going out after the collapse, after the panic, and you know shopping for bargains. And so that that's a good position to uh, to be in. You foresee something similar to '08? Uh, I think worse. Uh, the answer is yes, but but worse. And I base that on the fact that you know using uh, complexity theory, which is one of the branches of science I use. I talked about the things that don't work. The things that do work are uh, complexity theory, um, something called Bayes' rule, which is a branch of applied mathematics, um, behavioral psychology, um, history is a very powerful tool. 
powerful discipline. So using those kinds of tools, uh, we can see that the next crisis will be worse than the one before in the same way that the 2008 crisis was worse than 1998 uh, by orders of magnitude. Likewise, the next crisis will be even worse. Just because as you know, the system grows larger, grows more densely connected, um, and uh, uh, the scaling metrics increase, that means the worst thing that can happen within the system goes up, not in a linear way, but in an exponential way. Um, people talk about you know the banks are more sound because they have more capital. I don't take a lot of comfort from that. The, <laughs> the truth is, in in normal times, banks don't need any capital, and in liquidity crisis, no amount of capital is enough. And so, when you need it, you're not going to have enough, and and that's really not going to save the day. And we're probably at the outer limit of central banks' capacity to bail out the system because, you know, take the Federal Reserve for example. After 2008, they increased their capital from. $800 billion to uh, over $4 trillion. Uh, sorry, I said capital. I meant to say uh, the balance sheet, uh, their, their li- assets and liabilities. They increased their balance sheet from uh, about $800 billion to uh, over $4 trillion. They actually didn't increase their capital at all. They're, they're leveraged 113 to 1. They look like a really bad hedge fund right now. <laughs> but, um, but the question is, are they at the outer limit of what's possible uh, without destroying confidence in the dollar? Could they go from $4 trillion to $8 trillion or $8 trillion to $12 trillion, just keep printing money? Uh, my view of the answer is no. There are, there are people who think that's possible, that the money supply is infinitely elastic and no amount of money printing would ever cause anyone to lose confidence in the dollar. I'm, I'm certain that's not true. Um, and I think the Fed agrees with that, and that's why they're trying to normalize their balance sheet right now so they can do it again if they have to without going too far. But the point is um, they're, they're, they're out of dry powder. They They haven't normalized from the last crisis, so they're not prepared for the next one. And so if you have a bigger crisis than ever and the central banks can't bail it out, where do you turn for liquidity? And the answer is the IMF. Uh, they have this world money, something called the special drawing right or the SDR, and they can print those in, in very large quantities in, in the trillions of dollars equivalent, and that's where the liquidity will come from. But that means a completely different world. So uh, a world where the dollar is no longer the dominant global reserve currency and everything shifts you know, pretty quickly over to SDRs. So uh, so the point being, yeah, the, this is a crisis I see coming anyway, even if we weren't talking about North Korea. Uh, but North Korea is, is the kind of, um, you know, I can't say unexpected because you can see it coming, but I think to the extent the market seven priced it in, you could see a radical repricing which could then lead to create momentum and lead to uh, contagion and um, a capital markets meltdown. Wow, a lot to digest on. And I know you kind of hit on your new company. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, just for uh, a minute, I uh, uh, talked about you know the my path and my career and some ups and downs and some things I learned along the way. But I'm taking all of that along with some partners, uh, a great CEO, uh, Kevin Massengill, and um, uh, a great... Uh, scientist, uh, uh, applied mathematician, PhD, uh, Terry Rickard, uh, almost the same last name. Terry, his hmm. name doesn't have it. That's the end, but he's Rickard, um, Rickards. Uh, but, uh, and, and some others, some, some great players. And we put a, a company together called Meriglim, uh, and we are working with partners at IBM and, uh, Watson, which is their supercomputer, uh, natural, which has natural language ability. Uh, I think about eight different languages at this point. To build the models, uh, not just on a theoretical basis, but on a practical basis, actually, 
build the map, build the networks, build the inputs and outputs, uh, use Watson to scan, you know, the literally billions of pages of text. I mean, I wake up in the morning, I, I read a lot, I look at markets, I look at screens like a, a lot of others, but I can't read a billion pages a day, but Watson can. Uh, so if you train Watson to, in terms of what you're looking for and how that plugs into the models, it gives you enormous, enormous um, ability to update, and that's where Bayes' rule comes in. Uh, so we're actually building, um, uh, this is a third way of artificial intelligence that will give us very powerful predictive analytic ability in uh, capital markets, and we're going to be offering that to um, to very large institutions around the world. So it's very exciting, but in some ways a culmination of my career in the sense of having uh, learned some things, uh, some things through just you know hard work and discipline, and some things you know you learn the hard way through experience. But being, but being able to put that all together into uh, um, a service uh, that we can uh, to offer to clients. Oh, that's awesome. We'll get Marigold linked up in the show notes. And I would love at some point, hopefully we can make a round two to talk about AI and all the digital currency things happening now. But I can't thank you enough for joining us. And uh, next time you're in the Philly area, let me know. We'll get you linked up with uh, some Phillies tickets. Thank you, Sean. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash what got you there. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. I'm a huge fan of Audible and definitely recommend checking it out. If you're looking for a way to stay energized throughout the entire day, grab a bottle of Suniva Super Coffee. Suniva is something I drink on a daily basis. It's an organic bottled coffee blend with lactose-free protein and MCTs from coconut oil, which provides me with clean, all-day energy. Head to your local Whole Foods or use discount code WGYT at drinksupercoffee.com for 20% off your order. Suniva was founded by three college athletes who are brothers and wanted a cleaner way to stay energized throughout the entire day. Let's face it, we all want to look good in the clothes we wear, but I got tired of sifting through the racks looking for a quality pair of jeans that cost less than $300. Then I found Distilled. DSTLD, pronounced distilled, offers premium denim and essentials at an affordable price. Their products cost just one-third of what other premium brands charge because distilled refuses to work with middlemen, bringing savings directly to you. Just go to DSTLD.com right now and use the promo code JOURNEY10 in all caps at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh. What got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.